Hello and welcome to Seen Them Given, the show that looks at the laws of the game and the referees who enforce them. This week, dog so, when it applies, when it doesn't, and who got it right this weekend in the Premier League. A penalty and two red cards in the Championship's big match between Fulham and West Brom. We'll discuss the key incidents there. And can we read much into which sides have picked up the most cards so far this season? I'm Mike McCarthy, a football journalist and refereeing novice. My co-host is always Keith Hackett, former FIFA referee and ex-head of the PGMOL. Keith, great to, uh, to see you again. Um, first of all, can we... Start with, it's a bit of a time-honoured favourite subject of this podcast now, timekeeping. Uh, this from League Two, where it appears referee Alan Young essentially forgot to play stoppage time in the first half. His solution in Leighton Orient's 5-0 win over Hartlepool was to play four minutes after half-time, then get the players to switch ends. What do you make of all this? I think the referee's been brutally honest because... Law 5 states that he's the sole timekeeper. So he could have, if you like, maybe tried to get away with it. He didn't. In fairness to him, I applaud the fact that he's admitted an error. It's always difficult to do that with the referee, but he's done that. He's then determined what is the course of action. Obviously, we know the law. Law 7 is clear about the referee must not compensate for a timing error during the first half by adding it to the second half. So he can't do that. He can't suddenly say, I've played four minutes short, I'll therefore play 49 minutes and then added time. So I think what he's done is he's he followed uh, an example that happened some years ago in a Dutch game where the, where the match officials claimed afterwards that they were relying on the stadium clock for the timing of the match, which I thought was uh, at the time quite <laughs> oh, amusing. But in, the, in this situation, I think he's done the right thing. He's, he's, he's gone out in the second half. He's played that added time, the four minutes. He's then blown. He's not gone off again for another 15-minute break, obviously. And he's, the players have turned round. The ends have changed. And he's restarted the game. So he's got himself in a hole by a lack of concentration, uh, a lack of awareness. I, I would be asking as his boss, if I was his boss at the now, I, I would be saying, talk me through the situation with his colleagues, because I want to know why the assistant referee and why the fourth official didn't come in. They should have come in. I suppose it might, yeah. I know I haven't seen how this unfolded, but I guess it might be a bit difficult to, to intervene until you get into the, the changing rooms, because presumably he's blown the whistle to say well, it's half time. Uh, I understand that, but the answer is no. They've got their own communication kit here. And therefore, it's very easy. He's blown for time and then tell him. Have the courage to say, ref, you've played insufficient. You haven't played added time, mate. And sort it. And they could have sorted it there and then. So it's come in the dressing room. I suspect somebody's told them. You put the four-minute board up and you didn't play it. Why not? Timing in the game is really important. I mean, uh, we've, we've talked about this all element here. I mean, there was another uh, weekend where I think Manchester City's Pep Guardiola was, was uh, unhappy with the amount of time wasting that was taking part in the game. And, you know, young referees have got to understand that Law 5 gives them the responsibility. They're the sole timekeeper. They've got to make certain that they're adding sufficient time in. 
But prevention is better than a curing refereeing. And therefore, be proactive and not reactive. And, and by that, I mean, okay, you see the goalkeeper, he's slowing things down, he's, you know, on goal kicks. Uh, you see the, the guy running down the touchline, nowhere near where the ball went out of play to take a throw in. The law actually says you can indicate that the ball now is handed to the opposition and the throw is given to the opposition, but often they've not thrown it. <laughs> so, so the referee is in a bit of a dilemma. So in, my situ in that situation, it, there's got to be more proactive approach, a public warning, a quiet warning initially with the goalkeeper, say you're taking too long, I've got my eye on you. Inform the captain that you're not happy with the time delaying tactics. Time, you know, this subtle line between time consuming and time delaying, or time wasting, is is a, is a finite uh, scenario. And therefore, I think in that sense, referees have got to be proactive. And, and just on the actual timekeeping practicalities themselves, because when you brought up the stadium clock, I immediately thought, well, hang on a minute. If you ask me now to look at the referees from this weekend and said, how many watches did they have on their arm? I couldn't be sure to tell you whether it was one or two. So how do, how do referees do this? Do you have one watch that is just constantly running so you know, oh, we're 45 minutes into the game here, and a second one that you stop so you know how much to add on? Or how is it done? What, how is this practically meant to well, work? First of all, most of the guys are wearing what in effect is a polar heart monitor at the, the PGMOL level which is not just managing time, it's managing heartbeats and various other uh, technical data in terms of fitness scenarios. Um, so we're gathering a lot of information that way. Traditionally, I had an Ingersoll watch when I first started, a great big pocket watch that was a weight to carry around that had a screen on it that was colored in green or red, depending on which one you wanted to buy. And you would stop and start that. So it would stop and you only ended the game after your watch had reached 45 minutes. The modern watches do stop and start, but I, I think that if I'm honest, I don't see many referees stopping a watch. I, I, I think that they may leave it up to the fourth official to actually do that. But more often than not, we see three minutes going up at half time. That seems to be the norm. Uh, four or five minutes at the end. If anybody, you know, if timing's an issue, let's go to five and then we sort it. This is why I think we need an independent timekeeper. We will keep banging this yeah, drum well, on I, the I, podcast you know, until I, something I, happens, Keith. I don't, I, don't, I don't dwell lightly on the issue. I think that it's so vital for the public to have value for money. And I think equally it's right that the law that says two equal halves of 45 minutes. So we're actually getting 45 minutes, but we're not. I mean, I said to someone yesterday, standing watching Penniston Church, and I had no queries about the referee's performance or, or his timekeeping. But when I said that on average, it might be 50 minutes that's, that's played in a game, they looked totally shocked. But then when I started explaining, ball out of play, stoppage at free kicks, stoppage at corner kicks, you know, all those sort of scenarios, it adds up very quickly. Now, I suspect Dogso 
is going to take up uh, an awful lot of this podcast, given what we've seen over the weekend. Denial of an obvious goal-scoring opportunity. And I feel like we've got a case of a kind of Goldilocks dog so in terms of three incidents this week, Keith. One that was given that perhaps shouldn't have been. One that wasn't given that perhaps should have been. And one that was just right. So can we start with Aston Villa-West Ham? Because there was a, a curious double incident here. Uh, first of all, there is uh, something of a, a forearm smash from Courtney Hawes on uh, West Ham's Fornells. And then straight afterwards, Konza is dismissed again from a VAR check for a foul on Bowen as he's advancing towards the penalty area. So let's dive into yeah. both of these. Uh, first of all, the dog, so the one that was given... Was it a denial of an obvious goal-scoring opportunity, in your opinion? I think that this is very much about a referee judgment. It's about the, the law itself. Uh, you're not you're not looking for a cynical challenge. Any foul uh, on the attacker is is in fact the first level of criteria. Then you've got distance from goal. You know, the further back you go, what's the opportunities of that particular player being caught by a defender as he's running with a ball, allegedly. And then you've got direction of play towards goal uh, as being part of the criteria. And then the probability of the player to control it. So you've got a fair amount upstairs to think about in this type of scenario. So what have we got here? We've got, first of all, was it a foul, was it not? Let's say it was a foul because it was a coming together. Uh, and so, okay, I'll go with the referee. It's a foul. Now, I look at distance from goal. It's just on the edge of the penalty. It's not a problem, is it? Because it's fulfilled in that sense. So that's another tick of the box. And then looking at the probability of defenders coming in to defend that situation, and they're not there, only the goalkeeper. So I think that is ticked. The one area that gives me some doubt is actually the direction of the ball and the direction of play, because it's in, in effect going away from the penalty area. It's wide of goal to start with, and then it's going away. And, you know, I go back to my days at sending Tony Gale off where everybody thought I was absolutely 100% wrong, and I defend that even today on the criteria that was in operation then. The criteria has changed. So it defines it more closely. So Chris Cavana, in a good position, is determined this is a free kick and it's not the denial of an obvious golden scoring opportunity. It's a yellow card offence. I think I would support that given what I'm seeing. So if I'm looking at that and then I've got VAR comes in and says it's a clear and obvious error because that's the only criteria that he can come in, I'm suggesting that I think that's flawed. I don't think the referee's made a clear and obvious error. I think he's made a judgment call, which is subjective, and therefore allowing to do that. The problem is that when VAR comes in with our referees and they're going to look at the screen, they change the decision autom almost automatically. And, and it's mm. almost like a walk of shame for them from the point at which they've been advised by VAR, take a look, 
And in that walk, they're coming under personal pressure to change. And they change. Okay, let's say he's given the red card and off he goes. But the one for me, his house with his forearm smash. Yeah, so this is an interesting one. And obviously it's happened literally seconds before uh, the incident that sees Konza sent off. So when you look at that, obviously, I mean, the forearm makes clear contact with the face of Fornells. Um, the one thing I always uh, look at, because I've been told to in the past, is to look at the fist. And and a clenched fist normally means it's intentional, but in this case it wasn't. However, there are clearly other criteria that can come into this as well, Keith. So wh- why was this one uh, not given a red, as a red, but perhaps perhaps might have been? I, I cannot find any form of excuse or understanding why this is not a red card. This is an act of violent conduct. When we talk about a clenched fist, we're actually looking at the fist going that way in, and the forward being in, in front of the defender, if you know what I mean. The, defend, the actual attacker's behind him that he's, that he's punishing. Right. In this situation, this is a crash t- challenge. This would be penalised in rugby. Because he's gone there, bang, <laughs> he's hit him. And I, one of the things that I've noticed in recent months in refereeing across the board, and it can get drawn into two areas of how they view a player. And it's easy to look waist down because that's where the action is, that's where the ball is invariably. And if you concentrate too much and you get too close to play, your focus does go waist below rather than the whole of the body. And I think there are a number of upper body offences that have been missed this year that's slightly worrying at all levels of the game. Even at, you know, even at Peniston Church and in the North, Northern Counties East League, the NCEL, we, you know, so I think referees have got to be made more aware of that particular scenario. So for me, red card, the second one, Chris Cavana would have got away with a yellow without VAR intervention. Once VARs come in, you know full well, then he's going to issue a red. And, and therefore, the answer to, to your question, I think, that you might ask, yes, there's two separate incidents here. It's, you don't try to compact them into one. These are two red cards, you know, in this scenario. Uh, me... I would have liked to have found a way to have stuck with Cavana's this in, initial decision based on what he saw rather than actually interfering. And for VAR to actually concentrate on the first one. Now, because VAR have had a look at it, but they, they've not done anything about it, is there still a possibility that uh, Courtney Halls could be cited for, for violent conduct by the FA and, yes. and may face a ban anyway? Absolutely, because I think that the criteria the regulatory body look for, and they will ask the referee, did you see the incident? Uh, and they will ask the assistant referee, did you see the incident? If the answer from either of them is no, they did not, then I think it will go forward uh, and a charge will be made. But who knows, with, with the scenarios like the FA, uh, trying <laughs> to find a level of consistency is uh, a difficult one. Well, if you're listening after, I guess, about five o'clock on Monday afternoon, you may well know the answer to that question already. Um, shouldn't 
depart Villa Park without saying actually well done to Chris Kavanagh for a great advantage actually uh, for the West Ham's third goal mm. I thought there was a blatant foul in the centre circle play was allowed to develop promising situation and West Ham got their third yes I think that um, Chris Kavanagh is is developing I, I still feel as a referee he's got much more to offer one uh, I think when he was brought onto the list, it was a good choice. I think he's a, a very good man manager. I think he's one of the better decision makers, even though I've just criticised him. Um, but if you don't see it, and that's easily done in refereeing, then you, you, you can take no action because you can't guess. Uh, I think he'll be disappointed that he didn't see that or the VAR didn't bring it to his attention. So for me, I want him to gain in confidence a bit more. To, to recognise his own abilities and then to say, right, okay, firmly, I'm confident in what I'm doing. I think at times, I think he lacks the sort of body language that, that actually conveys to me, I'm totally confident. So let's move on to the next stage in the, our Goldilocks Dogzo conversation. So we've had one that was given as a red that shouldn't have been. Let's go to the King Power Stadium. Michael Oliver in charge here. Uh, Johnny Evans with a foul on Aubameyang. It's given as a yellow. Keith, I think you thought this should have been red. This is 100% wrong. And I, I'm, I'm rather surprised uh, by uh, Michael. Uh, you don't take into account the game, how the game is going with Dogzo. Uh, there's a reason behind why Dogzo came in. It's, it's to prevent these types of challenges. And as I've said before, because people often say, well, it's only a foul, it's nothing big, it's, it's not a red card offence. It's the actual action of committing a foul and a small foul, if need be, and denying a, an obvious goal-scoring opportunity. The advice that we as referee coaches give to referees, I used to say to them, look, what we want you to do is visualise the situation, the whole. So as play is building in this situation, look at the consequences and understand the law and the criteria. Now, when that foul takes place, so Johnny Evans has, has fouled his opponent. In your mindset, take, it, take Johnny Evans away. Move the offending player out of the visual. And if that foul hadn't been taken place, would the attacker have gone on with the ball and had a shot on goal? And, in, and if you look at that as a simple formula for young referees, take away the player that's committed the offence, think about will he gain possession? Yeah. Uh, and then have a shot on goal. That's the way to handle it. For me, that's the way I look at it. And there's no doubts that when Johnny Evans committed that foul, if I take him out of this scenario, the forward's going to go and have a shot on goal. So for me, Michael's got that one wrong. It's rare for him to get such a big error in his performances. Yeah, and, and Andre Mariner in, in our Goldilocks scenario getting it just right in terms of the challenge from Laporte on Zaha? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I mean, I, I think that the one thing about Mariner is that, you know, he's, he's a mature guy. He's been around a long time. He's a safe pair of hands, relatively speaking. 
He goes about his task in a very quiet, unassuming way. He's calm. He thought about it. And he executed the law and, and uh, was spot on. No question. That was a red card. And he issued a red card. And it's, it's surprising, isn't it? On the day that you, you know, we're discussing this, we had two very almost identical situations. One give it and one didn't. Well, which led Pep Guardiola in his post-match interview to say, well, hang on a minute. Johnny Evans didn't get sent off in the lunchtime game, and yet my player has been. And clearly the answer to him is, well, your player should have been sent off and so should Johnny Evans. But yeah. it's difficult, I guess, and, and maybe that is something, that, a conversation that Mike Riley has with him later in the week. Who knows? Well, I think that what is so important is that referees get together, they review these decisions. There's no point in just accepting you've made an error and move on. What you've got to do is individually ask that referee, Michael, talk me through it. What did you see? What? Why did you come to the decision you've come to? And then as a group, you examine those decisions and discuss them to determine, first of all, raise the awareness with other, other referees of an incident that's, that's fresh in their mind, show the video clip, and then have a discussion. And what is amazing is how... Referees will help each other. You know, you don't necessarily, as the boss, have to lead the conversation. I mean, I, I would get Graham Paul and Graham Barber and Rob Styles and Mark Elsey and Howard Webb and Paul Durkin having, having these levels of debate, you know, not always agreeing until we come to the end of it and say, right, okay, gentlemen, how are we going to handle this in the future? How are we going to agree? Because... In refereeing, what you've got to have is you've got to have consistency within the 90 minutes as a referee. That's what you, your aim is. And then what you've got to have is consistency within the group. And the group means everybody at the professional level. And you set the standard. And what you do at the highest level in the Premier League and the Football League cascades down into referees at grassroots level. They learn from watching referees in the past, Howard Webb, and the modern referees like uh, Michael Oliver, you know? And, and I think that you, you can learn and understand in refereeing, no matter who you are in refereeing, you'll make mistakes. And the one thing that Michael Oliver did and Andre Mariner did, who didn't make a mistake in that sense, they both parked that decision and moved on to the next one because that's what you've got to do in refereeing. You can't dwell. You can't think up here uh, and let this nagging doubt come in terms of you've missed one or you've made an error. There's almost got to be a, a, a mental arrogance to some degree that everything I do, I'm right. And you've then got to get a balance. You make it, you know, hey, come on. You've got one major error in 300 decisions that you've made. You, you, you have to talk yourself through difficult periods in the game. And if, if the game's suddenly boring and not a spectacle, that's when you've got to concentrate. You, you're almost saying to yourself, come on, come on, come on, keep, keep the form, keep the form. And that's part and parcel of the refereeing. Away from the game, you know, and, uh, Michael Oliver will hopefully visualise that scenario 
as he's driving his car somewhere uh, or sat in the lounge watching television, visualize what the scenario is and how he's going to improve and avoid his error in future games. But the first thing he's got to do after the game is admit it to himself that he's made, he's, he's made an error. We should say uh, we're recording this ahead of the end of the Premier League weekend with uh, Wolves against Everton still to come on Monday night. So I say this with my fingers crossed, but you know we've only talked about maybe three errors in nine games, Keith. It's been uh, overall, it seemed to me, a pretty decent weekend. You know, lots of big calls in Liverpool, Brighton. There were a couple of disallowed goals, uh, offside calls in the Spurs Man United game that were that were correct. Uh, a big offside call as well from VAR in the Man City Crystal Palace one, which again in law correct. A very tight one at Turf Moor, but again correct so it seems like you know actually this has been a pretty decent weekend overall yeah i think that you know like what the aim is to be and really is is what we were achieving way back uh, and that is uh out of 10 games one major error now i don't think that's a target because the target was no errors but we were hitting those levels of targets so three in a weekend is still for me, three that could have been avoided with a bit more effort from the referee, a bit more concentration, and perhaps a bit more confidence in a sense, you know, because the one thing about refereeing is if, you, if you're overconfident, uh, you lose concentration and the game kicks you in uh, where it hurts. Uh, and <laughs> I've no doubt that Michael Oliver will be smarting. I mean, you know, when you get to that very top level and elite level, you, you don't want to make those levels of errors. And therefore, I think that, I think we have seen technology working much better. I think, I've said it before, I do think VAR is working well. It's the hum, human element of VAR that we're talking about really this weekend, when to come in and when not to come in. You know, the glaring error of the, the miss, violent act, uh, VAR should have come in, perhaps shouldn't have come in on what I don't think was a clear and obvious error with, with Cavana. And then we had goal line technology, and I always smile when I, every time I see a goal line technology in operation, it's always accurate. And I smile because I, I go back to those days of the looks on the faces of the executives at the, the Premier League summer conference that I attended and when asked Blue Sky thinking, what do you want? And I say goal line technology, they thought I'd come off a planet or off, you know, out of Mars or somewhere. Because they looked at me absolutely gaga and thought, what's what's this guy asking? But now I can sit back with a little bit of, you know, we had to work hard to get that involved. And uh, But again, it came to the fore. Yeah, very much at Vicarage Road this yeah, weekend, in yeah. particular that one. Yeah. Um, well, let's step away from the land of VAR and into the championship. But Fulham, West Brom... A huge game at the top of the table. Michael Salisbury in charge here. Well, I wonder if VAR had been involved, whether the Bartley challenge on Mitrovic, which resulted in a penalty for Fulham, might actually have been reversed, Keith. Yeah, I think that uh, it would have been reversed. I think it's I think it's an interesting one. Uh, I think that Michael Salisbury is seen as a, a strong up-and-coming referee. He's, he's been promoted, of course, this year to uh, the SG1, which is the Premier League group of referees. I'm sure he'll learn a lot. Probably the fact that he's not had a Premier League game makes life difficult. But yeah, I, I think that we're moving. When I look at the teams in the championship and the quality of you know play that's taking place, 
these big decisions are going to impact greatly on whether the team's going to be in the Premier League challenge, you know, or mid-table. Mm. So for me, I think it's a natural scenario where the championship has to decide at which point does it come in rather than it's never going to come in, you know. And I know there's a cost implication to this, but I, I do think that when we're moving to a point where if we want that increased accuracy of decision-making, then we've got to accept VAR. You know, there's less less comments now about VAR. Now they've got the offside sort of scenario sorted. What I think is going to be really interesting is the next World Cup, when we do see fully automated offside decision-making and no VAR and no assistant referee involved in the process, because that's where FIFA are going at the moment. Those experiments are being carried out. I'm hearing that they're quite positive. So I think it'll be it'll be interesting that, you know, at the elite level of the game, we see that introduction. Very quickly, uh, just to uh, before we leave Craven Cottage, two red cards in this game at the top of the championship. Furlong uh, dismissed for Dogso because, you know, that's all that happened this weekend. Uh, Adarabayo uh, for, for a very, uh, well, late and high challenge um any complaints about either of those no not really um i think that the referee did his job uh i i, I can't sort of recollect that i i thought either was wrong you know i think we've got to get players understanding that if they launch themselves with two feet or one foot forward off the ground then they're subject to the referee looking very closely and uh and the potential of a red card. You know, there's a duty of care of players towards opponents. And I think sometimes we forget that, fellow professionals. I, I sometimes wonder whether the PFA, Professional Footballers Association, ought to make some comments at some stage in terms of players, player behaviour. But in fairness, the majority of players at all levels of the game, are well-behaved. It's just the odd ones that causes uh, major problems when they get frustrated. Now, before we go, Keith, I wanted to read you this question from Stuart, which came in on, on Twitter. Uh, our DMs at Seen Them Given are open, so if you do want to uh, get in touch uh, that way, then please uh, do so. Stuart says, I've been looking at yellow card stats in the Premier League for three or four years now. And I'm interested to know your opinion on which factors are the most significant in increasing uh, the likelihood of cards. At times, I think it's random, yet patterns do emerge. Do you think styles or tactics of teams can affect cards? Uh, West Ham and Moyes and Arsenal and Arteta have become well, sides that don't get carded very often. Do you think this is the personality of players or rather how the team plays, for example? Uh, also, intensity in a game seems important. Uh, the prime example being EFL Cup games, being extremely low for bookings, uh, says Stuart. Liverpool and Manchester City dominate games and their games are generally low on cards. Manchester United this season, though, have found it extremely difficult. In fact, I think they are uh, bottom of the fair play league such as it exists. Um, and also the referee as well. I mean, Stuart, it, it's a fascinating topic to get into. Um, what what can you pick out when you look at yellow cards, statistics, Keith, and, and how they actually play into it? Because I know fans can sometimes look at, well, they'll look at if I brought up the yellow card and red card table from the Premier League this season, they'll see that Liverpool have had 11 yellows 
which is lower than any of the side. No reds. And at the top, Manchester United have had 24 yellows and one red. Some fans will look at that and go, oh, well, the referees are clearly biased against Manchester United. And clearly that's not the case. But, you know, these sort of things can be quite quickly taken out of context. So what do you make of Stuart's question there and what he's saying? I think it's great that someone's taking the time and trouble to actually look at the statistics and build build patterns. That is exactly what I used to do when I was boss of the PGMOL. It was supplied to me, in fairness. Uh, and we could we could look at, first of all, the breakdown of yellow cards and what were yellow cards given for. We were moving towards more technical offences and, and then the likelihood of double yellows, which how could we avoid those? We looked at body language. We looked at more proactive refereeing. We looked at step management because some referees were jumping straight to a yellow when we're saying, just a minute, where's the quiet word? Where's the public response to bringing the captain in? Um, so I think there are areas where we can learn a lot. The truth is that those teams that have attacking flair are invariably the ones that are penalised. Defenders uh, fouling to stop progress of the attacking player. The player who sticks his hand out to prevent the ball, committing unsporting behaviour, stopping a promising attack, yellow cards. And of course... Uh, it's more often at free kicks, it's the defending wall, uh, not advancing 9.15, also giving away yellow cards. So I think that I can understand, given the position of Manchester United and, and perhaps some of the players, you know, the, the, the ones that are holding, ones thinking, I don't want to pick, pick too many out, but you've got Harry Maguire who fouls quite a bit because he's got pacey wingers playing up against him or pacey players. And sometimes his turn is not as quick as others and therefore he holds onto them and holds the shirt. So I, I think that you can read in quite a lot, but there is a trend. I mean, I, I once had this discussion with Sam Allardyce when he was manager of Bolton because he was concerned that um, Kevin Davis, the number nine, was the most foul player in the in the in the league and he was the statistics supported that but it also supported the fact that he was the player that was fouled the most as well he, he fouled his opponents most and when you looked at that it's the reason that he was he was the if you like the guy that was receiving the ball and passing it on invariably so more often than not he was getting lots of the ball and and therefore sometimes we look at possession and we break it down into challenges, challenges that were a, a positive and negative. So in, in dealing with analysis and looking at teams and preparing referees, as I did in the past, we would look at all these statistics. We would try to then uh, bring them together. It's not just look purely at a yellow card, yellow card, what for? And then look at the teams and determine uh, how we could avoid issuing so many. You know, we, we had a proud record of an average of yellow cards of three per game. At this moment in time, there's one or two referees on the, on the Premier League that are on average of five. Now, you might want to talk to them as the boss and say, look, let's have a look at all these yellow cards. So I would have, thanks to Prozone, I could have and would have and look fairly frequently at 
every yellow card that's issued and every red and why and then could it have been avoided was was did we have an aggressive referee i mean we have some referees who you know if we like mike dean mike dean is a not is a very competent referee but also one that applies the law very accurately and and obeys the law he doesn't he doesn't stretch it so as a result if he sees a a yellow card offence, a yellow card's given. There's no hesitation. And I've had this debate with him. Look, can you reduce the number of yellow cards? Uh, well, tell the players to stop fouling. And, and ultimately, at the end of the day, I can assure our correspondent that every yellow card is assessed and looked at. And can it be avoided? And in my period of office, there were very few yellow cards that I thought shouldn't have been issued. Stuart, I hope that answers your question. Good question. Thanks very much for uh, presenting it to us. If you've got a question for Keith, there's loads of ways you can do it. As I say, our Twitter address is at scene underscore them underscore given. The DMs are open there so you can get in touch. Uh, if you've got a question on email, hello at scenethemgiven.co.uk is where you can send it. And thanks again uh, for listening to the podcast. Uh, more and more of you doing it every single week. It's great to have you on board. Uh, if you want other people to know about the show, the best way that you can do that is by leaving a rating or a review wherever you get your podcasts. And it does help us go up the charts and the algorithms like it. Uh, there's new episodes of Seen Them Given every Monday. So uh, do look forward to seeing you next time. Keith, thanks so much for your company. Thanks. We'll see you next time.